It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The Omicron variant represents a new west-to-east tidal wave sweeping across the region on top of the Delta surge that all countries were managing until late 2021. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Political Europe in Brussels. Nice to be back with you on the podcast. Thanks to Reem for filling in last week. A moment ago, you heard a stark warning from the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Europe, Hans Kluge, about the latest coronavirus wave. Something I have a little personal experience of, having recently recovered from a tangle with COVID-19. Luckily not serious in my case, but of course still a very serious threat to many people across Europe and beyond, and a big challenge for political leaders in the weeks and months ahead. Later in the podcast, you'll hear from Walter Ricciardi, a prominent professor of public health and scientific advisor to Italy's health minister. He shares his views on what politicians could or should be doing to overcome this latest wave and to get us back to some semblance of normality. Also in this episode, it's been a sombre week here in Brussels following the death of David Sassoli, the President of the European Parliament. You'll hear more about Sassoli and his legacy in a few moments. But first, let's get an update on the other big topic dominating the headlines this week – talks between Western and Russian officials over the Ukraine crisis. Our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn, has been following it all, both in Geneva and here in Brussels. Um, David, do you want to give us a potted summary of where you think we stand? You were in Geneva earlier in the week. You've uh, just followed the press conferences from both NATO and from the Russian delegation on the talks here today. What have we learned, if anything? Where do we stand Well, we see that allies are quite united in confronting Russia over uh, the security situation on the border with Ukraine. Uh, It's really interesting, though, that Russia has managed to set the table for all these talks. I mean, all of these discussions are happening only because Vladimir Putin ordered a huge military buildup along the border of Ukraine, 100,000 troops, tanks, other heavy uh, weaponry, and decided that this was a moment to provoke a fight. Basically, even though we know many of his gripes go back decades even uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we have this back and forth where we now think the Russian side and the Western side, at least at the conference table in Geneva or here at NATO headquarters in Brussels uh, today, they know exactly where each other stand. What we don't know is where Vladimir Putin stands. I think even some of his own diplomats need to get back to Moscow and figure that out. 
Right. So it feels like there was a bit of a restatement of positions. As you say, uh, those grievances were, were aired again from the Russian side and the Western side, NATO in this case today, uh, the US earlier in the week in Geneva, uh, made clear that some of Russia's demands are just not even going to be considered. Uh, for example, uh, the idea that there would be some kind of guarantee that Ukraine and Georgia wouldn't join NATO, talk of, of the withdrawal of NATO troops from Eastern Europe, that those are just non-negotiable from the Western side. So I guess, where do we go from here? Well, there has to be a calculation in Moscow of how much more Putin is willing to talk. Uh, Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, and the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Wendy Sherman said after the meeting today that they had offered a series of meetings. They want to continue these discussions with Russia. Obviously, their feeling is that if they're at a conference table, there won't be bombs flying at Ukraine. And therefore, they were very eager to sort of set in motion a continuing dialogue. NATO allies are ready to meet again with Russia <coughs> to have discussions in greater detail to put concrete proposals on the table and to seek constructive outcomes. We remain ready to continue to engage with Russia. The heavy pace of bilateral and multilateral engagements this week demonstrates that the United States and our allies and partners are not dragging our feet. It is Russia that has to make a stark choice, de-escalation in diplomacy or confrontation in consequences. The Russian side didn't reject that, but it wouldn't readily agree to that either. So that's one of the principal questions that, that are being laid out there. Now, we have to keep in mind also that you know Russia is extremely good at the sort of mischief it makes and the way it can sort of reinterpret history. And so you know even when I asked uh, Alexander Grushko, he's the deputy foreign minister, former ambassador to NATO. Uh, Spasiba, uh, Alexander Petrovich, uh, David Herzenhorn's political uh, show person. You know, how – can you have an honest conversation if you won't even acknowledge what you've been doing in Donbass in eastern Ukraine? And he just flatly denies it. Well, there is no Russian presence in Donetsk and Lugansk. There is NATO presence in Ukraine. And again, as I said, uh, it should not and be And by the way, he said, kind of you want to talk about troops on the border? I have a question for you. And I uh, want to ask you a question. For example, how many uh, Polish soldiers and internal security officers, officers are being deployed these days on the Polish-Belarusian border to contain... Uh, you know, this is sort of higher level whataboutism. It's not novice stuff. And so they're able to point at, you know, what they view as, as slights and aggressions. And uh, again, all having a conversation that I'm not sure anybody in the West really wanted to be having. Mm. And where are the, the Europeans, if you like, on all this? The, the EU members, the European members of NATO, uh, you and Matt and, and Reem and Sarah talked on the podcast last week a little bit about some dissatisfaction on the part of the Europeans that they are not uh, leading the conversation here. And in some cases, they're not even in the conversation. They weren't part of the conversation that took place in Geneva earlier in the week. They were obviously around the table as uh, NATO members in Brussels today. Um, do you get any sense that the US administration is going out of its way to try and address those concerns? Do you get the sense that Europeans are uh, more or less satisfied with the way things are playing out this week? Or would they like to take a different approach? There's no question that 
the Europeans and the EU in particular, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has been very loud about this, saying Europe has to have a seat at the table. Now, of course, it does. Most EU countries are also members of NATO. The US has been you know, going to great lengths to make clear that it is collaborating uh, with its European allies. Uh, they've had this mantra that they've repeated over and over again that nothing will be decided about Europe without Europe or about Ukraine without Ukraine. We will not make decisions about Ukraine without Ukraine, about Europe without Europe, or about NATO without NATO, or the OSCE without the OSCE. Now, again, the Russians are master trollers, and they were very quick to point out today that, you know, there's all this talk about no conversation about Ukraine without Ukraine. Well, we just had an hour and a half meeting about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, and that's actually quite true. Now, I think the Ukrainians do trust that the U.S. is looking out for them in these talks, but it's very hard in any case where even if the intentions are good to kind of make you know, reality match the rhetoric. Yeah. Now, you and I are both uh, seasoned reporters. We deal in, in facts, not conjecture, but I am going to kind of venture in that direction now because it seems like that is part of the conversation at the moment. As you say, a lot of the issues that are on the table, particularly the complaints that Russia is making, have been complaints for decades. In a sense, the two sides have kind of agreed to disagree. It has not been, um, certainly in recent years, been considered something that someone would go to war over. And suddenly the temperature has been raised again. So this is prompting the question, why now? Uh, why has Vladimir Putin taken this step now? And, and some people saying, what does he really want? If he doesn't actually want to invade Ukraine, what does he hope to get out of all of this? And, and you know, without being able to having access to Vladimir Putin's head, we can't really know that. But what are the what are some of the more credible theories that you've heard or that you think, you know, merit discussion? So it's a question that everybody is asking, uh, trying to figure out what's going on in Vladimir Putin's mind. Some uh, analysts in Russia who make excellent careers uh, discerning what's going on uh, there in the Kremlin uh, are throwing up their hands and saying they don't even know. But I happened to bump into a, a colleague. We worked together in Moscow and we were having exactly this conversation talking about how Putin is opportunistic. And so there are a whole lot of reasons why he would do this now. And probably all of them come into play. You have uh, Joe Biden in the US who had a meeting with Putin last June in Geneva, but has made clear he wants to turn and focus his foreign policy on China. Russia doesn't want to be off the stage, let alone uh, off the stage, she wants to be at the center of the world stage and remain there. It may all just be a distraction from COVID and what's going on in Russia, where they're struggling just like everybody else. There is another theory that a lot of this is about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And he has very effectively kind of changed the benchmarks for when uh, this pipeline might be brought into jeopardy by sanctions. Now it seems that as long as he doesn't invade Ukraine, there's no basis for canceling the Nord Stream 2 project. And if he's, man you know, any of these things would work for him. It's sort of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So if he gets any of this, it's something for nothing. So we really are in a standoff, as folks can see in our coverage, and waiting to see what uh, the president of Russia decides. Does he want this to continue or not? Mm. And maybe, yeah, we'll see if there was a, a grand purpose behind it. I was struck by one of our reporters was telling me uh, he was talking to, I believe, a diplomat, might have been an official, who said that when these things uh, happen, 
uh, often the Russians don't want to tell us what they really want. They want us to work it out. So we'll see whether whether we can work it out or whether it all becomes clear in the fullness of time. Uh, for now, David, thanks very much. Thank you. Cari colleghi e cari colleghi, l'Europa ha ancora molto da dire se noi e voi sapremo dirlo insieme. Now, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, it's been a sombre week here in Brussels. Today is a sad day for Europe. Our union loses a passionate European, a sincere Democrat and a good man. David Sassoli was a man of deep faith and strong convictions. That was European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen paying tribute to David Sassoli the President of the European Parliament, who died this week at the age of 65. The Italian politician was not a household name across Europe. That may be partly because he spoke almost exclusively in his native language, rather than in English soundbites favoured by some other leaders. But he was, obviously, a senior and familiar figure here in Brussels, a leader of one of the EU's main institutions and a member of the European Parliament for more than a decade. To talk more about David Sassoli and about how he's being remembered, I am joined by our European Parliament reporter, Maya Dillabau. Hi, Maya. Hi, Andrew. So, Maya, you were talking to a lot of uh, members of the European Parliament yesterday and to officials and to people who knew David Sassoli. How did they describe him? How were they remembering him? The first word that I heard from many, many people who knew him and worked with him was the word kindness. Clearly, he was a very, very kind person, which I think is quite rare in this world and especially in politics. Yeah, they all pay tribute to his kindness, but also his humanness, his human touch. He would always ask people how they were uh, using come stai, who's the word in, in Italian to say, how are you? And whoever it was, he would talk to cleaning ladies the same way he would talk to his fellow MEPs. So I think he was very, in a way, very charming, very informal. It's a good description. Right. And he was an Italian social democrat, someone who had previously been a television journalist, and uh, as we uh, mentioned before, uh, joined the European Parliament, I think, in 2009. So a familiar face here in Brussels, but someone who only uh, relatively recently became a very prominent one when he became uh, president of the European Parliament two and a half uh, years ago. Maya, just kind of politically, what were his main interests, preoccupations? I think the media was one of them, actually. As a former journalist, he did speak out on media freedom and, and journalists' rights. What were the other kind of topics that he really kind of sought to make his own as a politician and as president of the parliament? I think he had a very strong social democrat convictions. Even if he was president of the parliament, which is something that would force him to be quite neutral and to sort of... Um, you know, build bridges uh, between parties. He was very, on some issues, he clearly uh, stood out as a real social democrat politician. And that concerns, uh, for instance, uh, the recovery plan when EU leaders had to decide on on the recovery plan, he said, we have to have common debt and we have to have what they called at the time the Corona bonds. Noi sappiamo una cosa, che è indispensabile trovare un meccanismo a garanzia del debito che i paesi 
He was also stood out as a very social democrat politician on other, you know, other items like migration. I think he was very clear and it was very clear in most of his statements that he wanted to focus on saving lives when it came to migration rather than just, you know, talking about border controls. It was more he always put the, you know, human human beings at the center of everything. Mm. How do you remember him personally, Maya? Obviously, you cover the parliament, so you're, you're uh, following MEPs closely here in Brussels and also in Strasbourg. I know you interviewed David Sassoli and would also obviously interact with him informally. How did you find him? What, what are your memories of him? I think the way people described him to me was more or less what I felt about him. I like the fact that he called me uh, by my first name, Maya, very easily. And that doesn't always happen in, in Brussels. So it's a nice way of breaking the ice, uh, you know, very early on when you meet a journalist. He was just very accessible and very fun and he would make jokes. And I remember an interview with him on the terrace of his office uh, when, you know, he offered me a cigarette and we started smoking together. And then he would uh, just talk about the weather and... Just having this very informal approach, very uh, easy, easygoing and friendly. But I have also another memory of him that I thought was funny when I tried to ask a question at one of these press conferences. I struggled uh, with a question because my internet connection was not very good. And he said something like, Maya, doesn't political pay for your internet connection? And he said it in front of every journalist. And I was laughing, obviously, but... And he was laughing too. And so, but it just shows how informal he was. Right. He had that kind of common touch. Yeah. And his death comes just as he was coming to the end of his two and a half year term as European Parliament president. So perhaps you could just talk us, talk me and our listeners through uh, what happens next. David Sassoli died, as you said, a week before MEPs will elect their new president. So before his term ended. And so next week is, uh, it will be on Tuesday and next week they will decide who this person will be. And there is clearly a competition right now, a race to be appointed. I think if I try to simplify things as much as I can, there is one candidate that prevails and her name is Roberta Mezzola and she's an MEP from Malta. And she's a very well-known MEP uh, from the conservative EPP party. And we know basically that the EPP uh, has has you know big chances to win this presidency. Right, they're the biggest group in the parliament, and there is some dispute about exactly what kind of deal was done. But there was a, a, there is at least an understanding that yes. the second half of this parliamentary term, the president would go to someone from the EPP, right? Which they're very much stressing. Exactly, that deal was agreed in 2019. So uh, that's what the EPP wants to stick to. But there are also other candidates. The Greens, for instance, have just presented their own candidate. And uh, the uh, left uh, also has a, a candidate. And the other group, uh, which uh, has you know, the Polish uh, governing party, uh, Law and Justice, in its ranks, has also elected its own candidate. Mm. We will see how that election plays out and bring the result to our uh, listeners next week. Maya, for now, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Coming up right after this, we'll talk coronavirus with public health professor Walter Ricciardi. How and when can we ever expect to return to life as normal? Stay with us.
And now a quick message from Politico Europe's marketing team. Are you a student or a young professional interested in EU politics? You might even consider to make it your career. Then join us online on February 2nd and 3rd at Politico's EU Studies and Career Fair. You'll be able to exchange with companies and universities looking for talents just like you. Search for euscf.politico.eu. That's euscf.politico.eu. And discover opportunities for your future. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. This week, the World Health Organization issued a stark warning that more than half of all the people in Europe would catch coronavirus over the next two months. The region saw over 7 million newly reported cases of COVID-19 in the first week of 2022, more than doubling over a two-week period. Politicians and scientific experts in capitals around the continent are weighing up their options about what they could do to protect people while also allowing our lives to return to some kind of normality. In this crucial moment, nearly two years into the pandemic, our chief policy correspondent, Sarah Wheaton, spoke to public health expert and advisor to Italy's health minister, Walter Ricciardi. My name is Walter Ricciardi. I'm professor of public health at the Catholic University in Rome, president of the World Federation of Public Health Association and currently scientific advisor to the Italian Minister of Health. Right. And you've been doing that throughout the pandemic. How have you managed to stick with this? You know, I'm not familiar, of course, with the pandemic uh, of these dimensions, but uh, I have been familiar in tackling epidemics and infectious disease in the past 30 years. So I'm surprised by the size of the problem, but not by the problem itself. So I'm, I'm trying to tackle it rationally, providing evidence to decision makers. And uh, on the other side, I'm surprised that after two years, politicians in most of the countries haven't yet understood that uh, unless we base our decision making on evidence, uh, this pandemic could last for years. Is there one area where you feel like they're ignoring the evidence? And do you feel like it's an issue of them not understanding or it's like a political ideology issue where they just don't want to accept reality? 
It's a combination of different ingredients, but I think the most important is the fact that uh, people, particularly in Western countries in the past seven years, have been accustomed to a kind of welfare system and uh, well-being that is very difficult to be somehow disturbed by any factors. And so politicians want to essentially comply with this feeling. And they, for them, uh, the best possible solution is uh, a business as usual, you know, and they do not understand and have to explain to the population that this is not possible with a virus which is transmitted so contagiously. So uh, this is the, mo- the most important problem, that politicians are advised by scientists to do what they have to do, but they are reluctant to do because people don't like it. Then there is a tiny minority of them, or even in the population, that is ideology-driven, but more than ideology, ignorance-driven, you know, because essentially they ignore the basic facts about viruses, about infectious disease, about vaccines, about technology, and but they are a, a vocal, noisy, tiny minority, but they somehow are frightening uh, politicians. Let's look at the practicality of where we are now. So what would you recommend that people do if they are in a country like Belgium, like Italy, where the Omicron wave is still building? I mean, what would you recommend that I do? I'm boosted, I'm in good physical health, and I'm so tired of this. And I wanna just sit inside a warm restaurant and enjoy a meal with my friends. Can you offer me any hope? Oh, yes. Uh, The hope uh, should be based on evidence. That's the difference between the now and the optimal future. You know, so if we advise uh, a government and say, you know, vaccination is the fundamental pillar for tackling disease, but it's not enough. You know, so if you base all your policies on vaccination, then people will be disappointed and disillusioned because they say, oh, no, you you told me that uh, a vaccine should solve the problem. And now I am again in the same situation after the basic uh, uh, vaccines and the booster, you know, and and eventually I have to boost uh, uh, even in the future anymore. And this is not ending. So you have to be very clear. You have to explain that vaccine is the first fundamental pillar. It's not enough. That behavior is important. And in order to behave normally, for the future, you you must have the whole population vaccinated. So you cannot be complacent with no vaxxers, you know, no green pass, no COVID pass with these people. Because we have been accustomed to freedom of choice, but in times of a pandemic, uh, freedom of choice can be eventually a little bit reduced in order to make our lives normal again. If we don't understand this, and of course we act consequently, that is going to be a problem for decades. In case we explain to our population that it's just a mix of measures that have to be based on evidence that we can get out to our normal life, I think that people will understand. Well, that actually brings me to my next question, which is this idea that, you know, some experts are saying that once we get past Omicron, that that may be the point when we can learn to live with the virus. But of course, learning to live with it means different things to different people and even different things to different scientists. So what does it mean to you? Living with a virus doesn't mean to live with masks, to live isolated, to to live in lockdown. Living with a virus uh, means fighting and then, of course, living normally. Uh, So when people say that let's live with the virus, what do they mean? That we have to be accustomed to have 200 deaths a day, like a jumbo jet uh, crashing every day. So 
in the past, we would be horrified by these figures. You know, now it's normal in many countries. Look at the states. I mean, the, the states uh, are having the most terrible casualties of their history ever, but they live like uh, normal countries. So they are going to be disrupted and destroyed, both economically and socially, if they don't take this seriously. So the, living with a virus means fighting it, and fighting it means uh, a combination of measures. First, we need the leverage of uh, patents, you know, for drugs. So the temporary suspensions of the TRIPS patent means that we can produce vaccines in India, in Indonesia, in South Africa, what we cannot do now. It's not thinkable that we can get out from this pandemic if we produce vaccines only in Europe and the United States, so not enough to cover the world. And unless we do that uh, as soon as possible, we are in trouble. And so you're, you're talking about changing the intellectual property protections for pharmaceutical companies so that treatments and vaccines can be produced around the world. Just temporarily, you know, just to get out from the pandemic. And now it's the time that we realize that this is the, the decision to take. Right. And you're, you're reminding me that, that getting one's head around this pandemic requires a new expertise in so many things, whether it's epidemiology or, you know, intellectual property rules, global politics. But back just to the more narrow idea of science, a lot of politicians have vowed to, quote unquote, follow the science. But we've seen that even scientists seem to be divided on what to do. We saw about a year and a half ago, one group of scientists more of a minority argue that actually we shouldn't do lockdowns at all. We should just maybe protect the vulnerable and instead let most people live their normal lives. You signed something called the Jon Snow Memorandum, which was more of a mainstream consensus affirming call for this combination, as you said, of of vaccinations once they're available and sort of broader societal protections to try to eliminate the virus. You know, in in your opinion, are these differences among experts purely scientific disputes, or have scientists gotten political also? No, I think uh, science and scientific thinking is uh, naturally a process of divisions, discussions. Uh, I mean, you cannot imagine before the pandemic how harsh were discussions about different issues. The fact is that now is in the public arena, you know, so uh, unfortunately what happens is that media are very, very, Uh, encouraged uh, to put this kind of dispute in an open arena because, of course, they have an impact on audience. uh, And there has been two years now that in the media, particularly on TV, there are, uh, you know, talk shows that are entirely based on this kind of disputes. And this makes, of course, people confused because they don't understand that this is a natural process of discussion. But, of course, in the public domain becomes a source of confusion. So it's difficult because, of course, when you are in a, in, a, in, a, in a dictatorship, this is not a problem because there is only one truth. We are lucky to live in a democracy, so I think it's better to have discussions like this and maybe the people get a little bit more confused, but at the end of the day, going in a, the right direction. Right. That's a really interesting point. It sounds like you're saying that. You know, scientists have always debated and they've been able to kind of do this in an appropriate and collegial way. But instead, sort of in the pandemic, it's become public and we've sort of put the frame of a political debate onto a scientific debate. And that's made it seem more hostile than it needs to be. Exactly. I've recently seen a, a T-shirt where it was written, make epidemiology boring again. You know? <laughs> 
and that's essentially epidemiology is one of the most difficult science uh, to be studied. It takes a lot, a lot of time. It's very boring uh, from a certain point of view. It used to be boring. Now everybody is an epidemiologist, you know, in the world. So essentially, that's the difference between the first and second stage of this pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't usually root for things to be boring as a journalist, but uh, I'll sign on to that one. Um, you and I talked a bit about last year uh, during a period when you were really first being attacked by Matteo Salvini, who's the far right leader in Italy. He was very angry with you for recommending things like uh, social distancing and, and uh, lockdown measures. At the same time, you, you said that you regretted a tweet that you had put out that showed people burning Trump in effigy. You said that you were making the point that people don't support Trump's handling of the pandemic, but you said, yeah, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. You ended up deleting that tweet. You know, so what have you learned about what it means to be at this intersection of science, policy, and politics? No, I am a public health physician, so it's natural for me to be speaking with the public, uh, to have this kind of conversation. The difference was that at that time I was already a scientific advisor to the Minister of Health, so somehow advising the government. It was improper for me to tweet something about another head of state. So I recognized that this was a mistake. And has it been hard for you personally? Because, I mean, it's not just Matteo Salvini, it's, it's other supporters, it's other people who don't like the recommendations that you're making. You know, has it been just like personally upsetting to be targeted the way a politician might be targeted? No, because I, I was right. You know, I, I've been called Professor Lockdown. You know, that was my nickname in Italy because I advise. I mean, if they have followed my I, suggestions, we have had 70,000 deaths uh, less. You know, so that the result of not taking a lockdown when I advised it was that the casualties were incredibly higher, even higher than the first wave. So I was right. I, and then uh, makes me still uh, going in the same directions when I am sure that on the basis of that, of data, of science, I'm right, I speak up. Mm-hmm. And as far as how you've seen adults embrace the idea of getting vaccinated against the coronavirus, have you seen, how has that gone compared to what you might have expected? No, after all, in Italy, 90% of the population is vaccinated. So it was a major success. Unfortunately, there is a a five, six percent that are reluctant and hesitant and vocal and noisy, sometimes aggressive, you know, that makes uh, the picture a little bit more disturbing. Is there any way to get to that five or six percent or are they just a lost cause? Two, three percent is a lost cause. The other two, three percent, it's uh, something that you can manage via different uh, way of uh, with different set of tools. First of all, nudging via what we call Green Pass. So it means that you can access social and uh, economic life only if you are vaccinated. And then, of course, mandatory vaccination for some groups of people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like, um, as President Macron in France put it, pissing off the unvaccinated, that could work for some percentage. He made a very strong argument. What he said is exactly the basic reasoning of uh, of nudging, you know. <laughs> it's, the the different vocabulary is quite interesting there, but um... exactly, exactly. <laughs> nudging is the technical issue. Pissing off the anti-vaxxer is the the political the political discourse. Got it. On a scale of one to ten, how with one being not prepared at all and ten being very prepared, how prepared are we for the next pandemic? I would say five, six. 
So we are not there yet. You know, we have to really change our mind, uh, change our decision making, speed up the process of preparedness. Uh, so it's, we are still not prepared fully, but certainly we are not zero as we were before this pandemic. We were zero. Zero. Now, wow. Now, okay. now, now we were five. All right. Well, so some improvement at least. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks to Sarah for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please do click follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast so you never miss an episode in your feed. Remember that we love hearing from you, our listeners. You can email the podcast team directly with ideas or feedback. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. A special thanks to Paul Dallison for his help on last week's podcast. And as always, a big thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and to you for listening.